I would tell you for all of the entrepreneurs who will be listening, you ought to be thinking about not just the game of what I call surviving, where you're doing the business that you know how to do exceptionally well, but how do you ensure that that parlays into people you care about, the charities that you care about in such a way that now your mission goes beyond your physical presence here. Welcome to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground, where we talk about supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity with everyone from academics, historians, and business leaders. With your hosts, Chloe Guidry-Reed and Adam Moore, you'll hear inspiring stories and practical tips for overcoming challenges and gaining insight into supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity. Let's dive in. This episode is brought to you by Higher Ground. Higher Ground is a technology company whose mission is to bridge the wealth gap through access to procurement opportunities. Higher Ground is making the enterprise ecosystem more viable, profitable, and competitive by clearing the path for minority-led, women-led, LGBT-led, and veteran-led small businesses to contribute to the global economy as suppliers to enterprise organizations. For more information on getting started, please visit us at higherground.io. That's H-I-R-E-G-R-O-U-N-D.io. Now on to the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. I'm Matt Colicello, in for Adam Moore, and I'm here with Chloe Guidry-Reed. And in today's episode, we're joined by Kenneth Kelly, Chairman and CEO of First Independence Bank. Kenneth is a highly respected leader in the banking community and serves as a director for the American Banking Association, was chairman of the National Bankers Association, and was appointed to the Federal Reserve Bank's 7th District Community Depository Institutions Advisory Council, the CDIAC, from 2018 to 2020. Kenneth was also selected to become a member of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation's Chairman's Advisory Committee on Community Banking and testified as an expert witness before the U.S. Congressional House Financial Services Subcommittee on Consumer Protection and Financial Institutions. Kenneth Kelly is also the author of Prepared Before I Let Go, Preserving Your Possessions Through Proper Planning. Wow. Kenneth, welcome to the show. Matt, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here with you and Chloe. We are so happy to have you. So excited to talk about your role at the bank, but more importantly, to talk about this amazing book. But let's get started. Tell us a little bit about your role. I currently serve as chairman and CEO of First Independence Bank. The bank has been in business now for 52 years. Predominantly, we were one of the positive outcomes of the 1967 riots in Detroit. And so ironically, in looking at what took place in Minnesota with George Floyd in 2020, we just opened a branch there in 2022 in Minnesota. So we have the first mm. African-American bank that has a location in the state of Minnesota is one of the positive outcomes due to George Floyd's murder. So I would tell you every day my goal in th- is thinking about how do I ensure that my teammates, the leaders who are out there servicing customers have the least resistance as possible to be able to lend money into the community, to be able to to break through and deal with the regulatory environment as we see fit, and to really just take care of all of our stakeholders. So as CEO and chairman, that's what's on the top of my mind on a daily basis. How do I make life a little bit easier for those who are really trying to do the mission as one of the few uh, minority-owned and specifically African-American-owned and controlled banks in the country? Wonderful. 
You are one of the first African-American banks that we've had on the show. I would love to hear just your philosophy on why it is important to have some of these Black-owned banks in our communities. Well, I would tell you with everything, we all know representation matters. One of the sayings of the 100 Black men, which I'm a member of, is they will be what they see. And so Mm -hmm. when you think about a capitalistic society, uh, money is the oxygen. It doesn't matter what you're talking about or what are you moving from one material to a raw material to a finished product. Uh, The oxygen and I would call it the fluidity is based on money and capital. And so for those few banks that are in the U.S. now, it's about 20 of us or less than 20 out of over 50 or 4,800 banks right at 5,000. I would tell you that imagery matters. Um, It has always mattered. Going all the way back to uh, 1865 with the Freedmen's Bank. And now, you know, here we are with a, a different version of that. But the reality is that we know from the Federal Reserve studies, from the FDIC studies, that representation matters. The secret shopper models that they have employed in those studies demonstrate that African-Americans get a different type of level of service when it comes to loans and lending when they go to a minority-owned and controlled bank. And so while those aren't the main reasons, I would tell you, it just gets back to the core function of representation matters and exposure. Uh, Hopefully there's a kid who will be listening to this who will know that I came from Eufaula, Alabama and had the opportunity to sit in this seat because of giants who really paved the way. And I'm hopeful that it will inspire some kid probably in the third or fourth grade thinking of one day I can be a banker, too, because I saw a gentleman who said he could do it. Wonderful. And so when we think about the legacy of the Black banks and what they're doing in the community, you're, this is a great segue into you telling us a little bit more about this book and legacy and wealth building in general. Can you share a little bit more about what inspired you to even become an author and, and tell yes. us a little bit more about the book? Well, let me say, I probably have an eighth grade teacher who would probably demonstrate and protest the fact that I've written a book. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say English and writing was not my strong suit. I'm an engineer by training. I I got my degree at Auburn University and my MBA at the University of Alabama. And I would tell you that that was certainly probably not on my bucket list or goals list. But, Chloe, you ask an interesting question. Sitting in the seat that I sit in and really reflecting on the responsibility that we have when we think about this wealth gap, I started to do some of my own research. And in the midst of that, what I found is oftentimes, many of us, we have really kind of a a gap in what we spend all of our life doing and acquiring. And then how does that transition to the people we love and care about? And really, as you just articulated, uh, I talk about the term legacy quite a bit. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean you have to be famous to have a legacy. Your legacy is what it will be. But enhance that legacy by being sure that you're taking care of a will, healthcare directive, and power of attorney for your families. So it doesn't matter if you're a custodian or you're a CEO. All of those right. things are expected of us. And so I decided to write a book about it. And needless to say, the statistics were alarming. I found that three in 10 African-Americans in this country have a will, which means seven in 10 do not. And so there's mm-hmm. a huge market out there that I'm hopeful this message that that you, Chloe and Matt are helping us to articulate become a part of the solution. Because even if we get it up to 50%, that's drastic improvement. If we get it to 70 or 80 or 90%, it just says mm-hmm. that what we do every day matters. And we want to be sure that those possessions can get to the loved ones we care about. But I will tell you one mm-hmm. other component, Chloe, 
about this. The latter part of my book caused me to reflect in a different way, mm-hmm. not about just material things, but about our philosophies. The discussion about how we think about religion, how I think about giving, how I think about mm-hmm. service to others. And so the latter part is about being sure that we articulate what we believe in life and give that to our heirs in such a manner that is not just folklore of dad thought this or dad believed this or I saw granddad do this. And one example of that, as I write about in the book, Chloe, is Osceola McCarthy, who was a lady best known as a washerwoman. All of her life, all she did was wash individuals' clothing. She never owned a car. But in the latter days, she basically left the University of Southern Mississippi or gifted, gave, shall I say, because she was still alive when this happened. She gave right at about $150,000 for African-Americans to have scholarship opportunities at the University of Southern Mississippi. So much so, President Clinton at that time highlighted her contributions to society, and needless to say, many others contributed to her to her gift to make it a fully endowed scholarship. But needless to say, a reporter asked her, didn't you want to do something with your money? Again, this is a lady who never owned a car, yeah. saved, and basically washed individuals' clothing. She looked at that reporter and she said, I just did. So mm-hmm. it goes to show it doesn't mean that you have to come from mega means. You can come from meager means and have a yeah. lasting legacy. And one reason I wrote about her, because I think she's one of those should go into perpetuity because of her sacrifice for others and her legacy. When you talk about creating a legacy or creating intergenerational wealth for African-Americans or other minorities, one of the engines that we obviously talk about a lot on this show is entrepreneurship. People being mm-hmm. able to start small businesses, people being able to access capital to initiate and grow those businesses. Can can you talk about that part of your mission? So you've got those individual loans and financing that you're giving to people, but when it comes to diverse businesses or specifically Black-owned businesses, can you kind of bring this together, your work both at the bank and then, and then what you're writing about in the book? Yeah, I, I would tell you oftentimes what happens with, I would say, even some exceptional business people, and I'm not ruling myself out as one being included, is that we're very gifted in unique things. And sometimes we don't build out the whole pie, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is if I am great at, let's say, fixing shoes, I become really good at it. But I don't have time to think about all those administrative things that comes along with being an entrepreneur because that's just not my skill set. And so what happens is at the end of the day, for many, I won't say all, many, you know, that building up of that business can kind of fall apart in the midst of maybe some of those administrative skills we've talked about. And so I've used the term, we're all the CEO of our own lives. And part of this mission that we're working on as we talk about legacy and we talk about wills, healthcare directives, and power of attorneys is such that we all start to think about, well, that's something I need to take care of. But not only that, that we do something about it. And so, Matt, it's a very good question you've asked. I would tell you for all of the entrepreneurs who will be listening, you ought to be thinking about not just the game of what I call surviving, where you're doing the business that you know how to do exceptionally well, but how do you ensure that that parlays into people you care about, the charities that you care about in such a way that now your mission goes beyond your physical presence here. Yes, yes, yes. And even when we think about just like the social aspects, you know, um, and philanthropy, this kind of brings us back to, 
our first introduction to you, Kenneth, and that was you speaking at the WeBank conference around ESG and how I think oftentimes we think of this as this, you know, effort only by large enterprise organizations. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, how suppliers and smaller businesses need to start thinking about ESG as they prepare to do business with larger corporations? Well, I would tell you, you know, we, we've gone through kind of this evolution and unfortunately with such a polarizing sometimes society, we take good intent and try to make it have bad impact. And as I think about ESG, I want to be sure that all of your listening audience knows this is not a political statement that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about this from really the stakeholders view, meaning not just what I get out of it, but what am I putting back into the process? So right. that those that are all around me, whatever you want to call that, from a social perspective, a governor's perspective, an environmental perspective, um, how do I ensure that what I have done, the intent of what I've done, have the impact of what I intended, which is hopefully for the good? And yes. so for, with that mindset, let me say that all of us should be ESG oriented, thinking about how do we behave and govern ourselves in such a manner that we leave the place very simply stated, we leave the place better than we found. it. And so many, though, have started to interject in this in a way that has become polarizing. Uh, but I would tell you at a very fundamental level, I think all entrepreneurs, as you said, this has started with large corporations, but even smaller entities ought to think about how do I look at my impact on the environment and whatever business it is I, that I am doing? Am I making it more efficient for my, my customers and or my stakeholders? And can I do that across the board in a way that certainly have a positive impact? And so as we spoke about this at WeBank, it was really with that level of centeredness, if I can use that word, in terms of how do we think about not just what we do, but why we do it. And then how will we leave the place a little bit better than we found it? Yes. Well, I was just looking back at my notes from your session at the WeBank conference. And um, two things really stuck out to me that I had underlined at the time that I wanted to ask you to expand on just a little bit. Um, and that is, I remember you talking about how it is kind of a responsibility of people who are advocating for small businesses, whether it's lenders or um, even those larger corporations that are developing their suppliers. It's their responsibility to help suppliers, small businesses, think about how to tell their sustainability story. Think about, in a way, how to use not just supplier diversity as this growth strategy for right. identifying context, but also their ESG story, what they're doing to be sustainable, what they're doing as in terms of social impact, how that can be part of their growth strategy. Can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like? Yeah, certainly, certainly, Matt. And thanks for reminding me of those statements. <laughs> I will tell you to, to the point, you know, when you think about large corporations, sometimes they're looked at not favorably, but mm. they have a tremendous amount of impact on this country. Um, our ability to be successful as a country has been in large part due to being able to aggregate capital and be able to use that for good. And this is another example of that as we think about ESG, which is they have the in-house capability in a lot of cases and the know-how and the resources to really do this almost kind of like, you know, we breathe very effortlessly. Mm -hmm. And so for smaller companies, this becomes a, that our resource, I would say challenge, this becomes yeah. a really big deal in trying to be able to just not only survive doing the business, but 
get to a point of thriving and, and being able to do all of the multiple things that a CEO and many others have to think about and do. And so my clarion call there, Matt, was really to say for some of these larger corporations, you can help these smaller entities think about ESG in a different way and in, in some ways really connect them to the resource base that you have to be able to jumpstart their ability to get there a little bit faster. But that was the intent. Very, very nice. Super powerful. I mean, we're, we're very much plugged into this space and I haven't heard anyone else frame it that way. And I think that that's yeah. like super important to amplify. Well, it, it's, it's fairly simple when you think about, you know, the capitalistic society we continuously talk about. Um, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort and a lot of resources to amass what I would call large institutions. There's a reason that they talk about the Fortune 500, not the Fortune 500,000. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. It, it's, it's a very daunting task. And, you know, when you sit in the seat of the CEO, you know, while it is great to dream to become those, uh, I would call it large institutions, it takes a lot of mass. It takes a lot of time. And back to my engineering, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of, I would call it momentum to get that boulder moving. And so my only point and intent of even talking about this is that, again, hopefully some of those, those resources and the know-how is somehow matriculated down to smaller organizations to help them be able to move the ball a little bit easier. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so when we think about, you know, supplier diversity and and banking, um, talk to us a little bit about, you know, just lending and small businesses from your perspective and how First Independence Bank if at all, you know, works with some of these small businesses to find various solutions, capital solutions for them as they continue to grow or expand or want to start ESG initiatives and need the capital to to support that growth. I would tell you, as I just alluded, this role, and I'm not talking about just mine or me in the role, I'm talking about in general, is Mm -hmm. very daunting and very challenging because it always depends on kind of the chicken and egg scenario. And so when we think about banking, typically those individuals get to a stage of being bankable. In, in, in most cases, you know, there has to be some form of resources, et cetera, that proves that you can collateralize what you're trying to bank. And that's the way our banking system works. So right. the reality is I'm trying to set expectations that you don't just show up at a bank and say, oh, I want a loan. I have a great idea. I know my grandmother's recipe. And I can open a restaurant and be successful. It's just not that simple or that easy. But the reality is what we really try to focus on is learning to leverage the the myriad of different things that are going on in the business community to hopefully help people be able to move through that progression that I alluded to just a moment ago. And so for that mm-hmm. business that may have now 10 or 15 employees looking to try to build and expand or buy a building instead of renting a building, you know, that is a business growth opportunity. And so we make a concerted effort to try to lend to those individuals and be sure we can help them move along and along the continuum and and the spectrum of being able to be able to do the things that help them to survive, to get into a place of thriving. We partner with many institutions where we don't have the momentum, like on affordable housing. Uh, We've done work with LIS, L-I-S-C, in such a manner that we can have a voice at the table and really be a strong advocate for affordable housing because the size of our bank, you won't see us go out and build a, a 200 apartment complex but we have the ability to partner with the right individuals to be able to go and do that. And so I'm sharing these examples, but just to show and say, even as a bank, we have to be very thoughtful and creative about how we create partnerships to get to our end goals, because 
in a lot of cases, we may not have the momentum to be able to do what we want to accomplish, quote, in-house. And so we partner with others to do that. And I think that's very true also for small businesses. And oftentimes, oftentimes we see business owners who in some cases, not just because this is a bad thing, but they really get focused on what they're good at when oftentimes you need to try to figure out how do you build a team and expand your vision in such a way that you're bringing others in to help you reach your goals. And so what I commit to on behalf of First Independence is we're willing to help anyone who's in the entrepreneurial field, helping them to expand, you, if you want to call it, their vision to be able to fulfill that vision by bringing other partners to the table. For people listening, how would you describe the kinds of what, what you look for in ideal partners for those kinds of projects? Yeah, I, I would tell you, it's just like I made reference to my eighth grade teacher. <laughs> you probably would remember my track record as an English student. The same is true in banking, right? We look at your track record and what have you done um, and be able to prove that you can be successful um, with that. And so, you know, we, you hear a lot about the three C's, credit, the collateral and character. Those things go a long way. And I can tell you, and I don't mean this to sound flippant, but um, oftentimes you have to have a balance of all of those three things to be successful if you're going to approach a bank. We can probably think of many individuals who on Wall Street uh, who made bad decisions because of their character and misled individuals and in some cases uh, went to jail. Uh, the intent is that, you know, your, your character and that's not doesn't mean you're perfect every day because I'm going to raise my hand. I'm not. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, try to be consistent where you can cross those three C's. Um, your track record will speak volumes for you, along with others who are willing to vouch for you. And that doesn't mean you have to have someone to co-sign, but do your work in such a way that, you know, there are others who are willing to say and speak up on your behalf. Question for you just around the diverse businesses that you may work with, you know, at First Independence. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your institutional initiatives around supplier equity and inclusion and as it relates to the diverse suppliers that you guys contract with. Yeah, I, I would tell you we are not where we want to be. And I think that goes with a lot of corporate America. Yes, um, our, pretty our much business everyone. Is, yeah, our, our business is <laughs> a lot of labor, meaning the staff yeah. that we hire. But also when you think about the technology behind it, it is kind of the consumer, you'll hear the term uh, core system. Uh, we are and have gone to a core system that is owned by Robert Smith that many know in this country now mm -hmm. uh, called Finastra. So it is owned by an African-American male. And so my point is uh, we are looking at other continuous ways to broaden our ability to be successful in the, in the area that you call supplier diversity. So yeah. my point is, we all have to try to demonstrate that. Are we where we want to be? Absolutely not. But I think part of what we try to do inside of and part of our ethos is being sure to kind of spread that as an, as an opportunity. Uh, we also call people on the carpet on some of these things, too, mm. because we believe that creates an opportunity for what I would call inclusion. Uh, again, as I alluded to moments ago, we live in such a, I call it polarized sometimes discussion around politics. Some of these words get tainted and we don't even know it. And sometimes we know it and we play into it. Uh, right. The term supplier diversity is probably what, about 30 plus years old now. Yes. Um, but, but it's one of those that has a connotation of, oh, I got to do this just because someone is not a natural supplier. 
And that's the farthest thing from the truth. And so my point is, we all have to be very thoughtful about how we use language and be very intentional not to even create the smidgen of lack of credibility in the way terms are used. But my point is really at the end of the day, as you ask about, when I think about looking at our, our suppliers, does that base reflect the community that we serve? Does it give us a chance to fully understand who we're interacting with from kind of the stakeholder perspective and do all of the things we talk about from an ESG perspective? And so I would like and hopeful that we'll begin to see the way we shift and change language and how we use it in such a manner that it becomes positive going forward. It's interesting because around both terms, ESG and supplier diversity, you've you've kind of disclaimed what, what I think we all know, which is that sometimes it becomes performative or it becomes about reporting, but in fact, what is reported doesn't really match reality or what is reported only reflects a kind of numeric impact and not a, a qualitative impact um, on the target communities, right? Mm-hmm. On actual diverse entrepreneurs. How do we create, I mean, and this is more of a speculative question, but how do we create real accountability for companies? How do we really hold them to these goals and ensure that they're that they're really doing it? Well, I, I think it's in some ways simple, but it's also complex. It takes leaders like you, Matt and Chloe, talking about this mm. and being sure that there's an environment where people know the expectation is you need to answer for this and to be able to account for what you've done and how you were a steward over the resources that you had. So that's one aspect of it. The complex aspect of this is it's hard. I mean, it's just hard. How do you say what's the right number of females and males and African-American males and Hispanic males, et cetera? And so, you know, you get into back to your point, the quantitative games that people try to play politics with. But really, it's about, you know, what creates the right qualitative attributes that you would aspire to. But I would encourage you all, as I would consider you Um, leaders in the media uh, to continue to press this point in such a way that you hear from such a diverse group of individuals on on these topics that you decide and we create what is that right scorecard the one that that not only just count count but also can can identify with the qualitative issues that comes along with that we know the demographics and we know what they say and that data is real all of us can look at it and maybe kind of polarize a lens left and right about 45 degrees to say it's not what we think it is. But the reality is that that data is the data. And so what we have to do is figure out, okay, well, what are the right trends we need to be sending in such a manner that we can change the narrative on this topic and keep it positive going forward? I love that. And that's such a great way for us to to end. But before we end, I would love for you to tell our listeners where they can find and get a purchase a copy of your book. Oh, certainly. This this is the delightful part here. Of the book. <laughs> I mean, you throw this up like a softball, right? Well, we, we have two things that I've talked about. One is a book and that is on beforeiletgo.com, www.beforeiletgo.com. And in fact, in many cases, I can sign those books when they're purchased through that process. May take you a little bit longer to get it, but I can actually sign that book. The the technology platform that we talked about is on mylegacyitems.com. That's mylegacyitems.com. And so we'd love to have your support. This is something that is really important, not to just what we're trying to do, but we think it's important to all Americans when you look at the rates 
that we talked about earlier in this conversation, we can change the narrative one family at a time. I think we all kind of really lock arms and really push with a little bit of momentum. So let me say thank you for giving me an opportunity to speak on these two things. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights. This has been incredible and it's given us a lot to think about as well as we just think about the type of impact that we want to make and that you don't necessarily have to be a large corporation no, to have, you know, ESG goals and aspirations. And, you know, you can start wherever you are in your business. That's correct. And start small, which is what I talked about back at the We Bank, as, yeah. as Matt alluded to. Don't try to conquer it because it's a, it's a very dynamic and complex chart. And so there's a lot of things you could do, but pick the one or two things that really align with what you naturally do. And you can begin there and make it happen from there. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. I'm hopeful you all will have me back at some point in time in the future. Oh, we definitely will. We definitely will. Let's commit to doing that. If you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcast and check out our previous shows. Please stay tuned for next time. Thank you for listening to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. We are grateful for the time you spend with us in participating in these conversations. Please review and rate and share our show as we are focused on growing awareness in the supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity space. If you'd like more information, please visit us at higherground.io. That's H-I-R-E ground. Thank you for being here and we look forward to seeing you next week.